So I don't know what comes to mind uh, when you hear the word church, but my hunch is that it's a far cry from the first church, the very first church of the first century. You see, uh, because the very first church from the very beginning, the church has always been a movement. It didn't begin as an institution. Uh, It didn't begin with buildings. There weren't any Bibles or banners or bands. There weren't any pews or popes or anything else that begins with the letter B or P. From the very beginning, the church was just a movement. And it began as as a movement around a very simple idea, but a monumental moment in history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It was the resurrection of Jesus that galvanized these first disciples of his to follow in his ways, to lead others in the ways of Jesus. And these followers of Jesus would later be known as Christians. And their gatherings would would later be known as churches. And now even though the the church today looks a little bit different, a lot a bit different from the first century church, the church today is still a movement. Because movements move. That's what they do. Movements change, they adapt, they move. But more importantly, movements move others. And movements move the world. And so here's where things get a little bit interesting, at least from a a Bible nerd perspective. That, That little word, church, that's translated in your English Bibles, whenever you read your English Bibles and you come across the word church, it's a translation from the Greek word ekklesia, or ekklesia, maybe you've heard it that way, but ekklesia. And this literally means an assembly, a congregation, a gathering of people. That's what an ecclesia is. It's an assembly, a congregation, a gathering of people, typically around a a single focus or a single mission. And when Jesus launched his church, his ecclesia, he launched a gathering around a simple idea with a simple mission. But then something terrible happened. As time went on, there was a transition from the idea of church being an assembly, a gathering, a movement, to now church becoming a location. I think, think about it. When, when somebody asks you, where do you go to church? You don't say, well, I have some church that you know, lives in North Dunedin, and I have some church that lives in Palm Harbor, and some church that lives in Clear. No, you say it's at the corner of Maine and Douglas downtown. We've moved this idea of a church from a gathering to now a location with a hierarchy. We've changed the idea from a gathering around an event, the resurrection of Jesus, to now a gathering around an enclave, a building. And something really interesting that has happened, a change that that kind of signifies this transition in our mindset. is, is how we, we began using the word church and the translation of it. The dominant word that we began using for uh, church in our English Bibles was no longer, no longer the, the Greek word ekklesia, but we took a German translation from the Greek and we found this word kircha, or I don't actually know how to say it because I'm not German, um, but kirch, I got a German lesson after the last service and I still don't know how to say it. Um, but, but 
Unlike the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering, the German word kirche means the Lord's house. It, it meant It meant a gathering place, a location for religious events to take place in. Now, these are two very different things. One one is a gathering, a congregation, a, a movement of people. And the other is a location, a building, a place, which, you know, buildings, buildings are great. Buildings are nice. But, but here's what happens is that we have taken this organic grassroots movement and now located it in a particular place. And then over time, what happened is, well, whoever controlled the building controlled the church. And whoever controlled the building controlled the church and controlled the scriptures. And whoever controlled the building controlled the church, controlled the scriptures, and now could control the people. And what began as a movement that was meant to move became a place that was now fixed and built with structure and hierarchy. And now, Please, please hear me out. Structure and hierarchy can sometimes be a good thing. People say that they don't like organized religion. Have you ever tried unorganized religion before? Okay, it's a little cultish, right? It's, it's not necessarily a good thing. And, and I, for one, I'm glad that we have some structure and some organization. I'm, I'm the kind of person that needs a boss to help me focus, to keep me in line. It would be a sad day in the Methodist church if they were ever to appoint me bishop, right? That'd be terrible. I'm the reason we need bishops, okay? That, so... <laughs> Speaking of, speaking of bishops, the Methodist church, um, an interesting thing about the Methodist church uh, that, you know, we kind of have our spiritual home in within the Christian faith. The Methodist church uh, never intended to become its own denomination. It, it actually started as sort of a grassroots movement within the Church of England or the Episcopal Church here in the U.S. That John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, tried to create a revival movement within the Church of England. He, he tried to revive it from the inside out. He did a darn good job at it. But over time, we fell into the Kircher trap. That we went from a movement, an ecclesia, to now a building. And so here's what Jesus said about his, his church, his ecclesia, his movement. One day Jesus was with his uh, 12 disciples and, and he asked them, he said, hey, what's the word on the street about me? What, what is it that people are saying about me, who, who I am? Some of the disciples reported back the things that they had heard. They said, well, some, some say that you're a prophet. Some say that you're like a reincarnation of, of the prophet Elijah or John the Baptist. And then Jesus asked this, this is Matthew chapter 16. He said, Jesus said, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, one of the disciples said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus replied, happy are you or blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my father who is in heaven has shown you. I tell you that you are Peter or Petra and I'll build my church, my ecclesia on this rock and the gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. So to paraphrase Jesus here, he says, I will build my movement on a person who will then go out to reach other people, to build other people up so that, so that death itself 
so that hell itself will not be able to stop it. That that no matter how many people come and go, no matter how many people die, no matter how hard things get, this movement will not end. There's no stopping it. And then a little while after Jesus said this, he was crucified and he was buried. And it seemed like this movement stopped. That on the day that Jesus died, everyone unfollowed Jesus. But then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and the movement continued, reignited with a new resurrection energy. And so for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus uh, appeared to his disciples and some other people throughout the area before he ascended into heaven. I know I just skipped over a whole lot of the Bible right there. Just hang on with me. Uh, But then on the day of Pentecost, which Penta, we get 50. So 50 days after Easter on the day of Pentecost, Jesus's ecclesia, his movement, his gathering was born or, or probably to say it in a better way. Jesus's gathering was, was coronated. (laughs) This was the crowning of Jesus's church. Jesus already had a movement, but now this movement had a significant power and authority that was given to it that would change the world forever. And so here's what happened on that day. This is Acts chapter two. It says when Pentecost day arrived, They were suddenly, all the disciples were suddenly all together in one place. And suddenly a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now, Pentecost before it was known as a Christian holiday. It was first a Jewish holiday. Uh, It was a Jewish festival. This was a a festival day within the city of Jerusalem because that's where the uh, Jewish temple was. Jews from all over the world, all over the known world would come into the city of Jerusalem for this festival. It was to give thanks to God. To to give thanks to God for the fruits of the harvest. To give thanks to God for God giving the law to Moses. And so you had Jewish people from all over the world here gathered in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit falls. And, And now all these Galilean Jesus followers are able to speak in different languages. So, so that people can understand them. Languages of, of people from all over the known world at the time. And in all of these different languages, in all of these different tongues, they begin talking about Jesus. Who Jesus is. What Jesus has done for them in their lives. And so here's, here's the miracle of Pentecost. That this wasn't a particular language for a particular people. This movement was multilingual, multicultural, multiracial. Everybody was a part of this because God has now broken down the barriers that have divided us for so long. This was the Holy Spirit joining people together who otherwise would never be joined together. This was a holy joining of people who otherwise would, would never come together. And this was the church. This was the the ecclesia, the gathering of the Jesus movement, what he had talked about. 
telling his disciples that, that nothing would be able to stop this movement. Not, not hell, not death, and surely not any human invention, any human barrier, not any barrier of tongue or race or any of that could stop this movement. And this movement would travel to the ends of the earth. And this was it. Here, here it was. This movement was happening right here, right now. And from on here, it would just continue to spread to, to more regions, to more people, to more cultures, to more languages. And, and it's true. It is true that the church has not always gotten it right. It's true that the church has not always been on the right side of history. Heck, the church at times has often been the ones to oppose God's radically outreaching inclusion of the Holy Spirit. That, that's all true. But you know what else is true? Is that this movement has not stopped. That, that despite our own worst human efforts, God's church continues. God's gathering of people continues to happen. The Holy Spirit continues to move. The movement has not stopped. That is the good news despite all of the darkness. And, and so I want to just talk um, briefly about some of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. Cause sometimes we get a little confused about the Holy Spirit, what, what it is and, and all of that stuff. Um, but, but first let me just give you kind of Christian theology 101 about the Holy Spirit. Okay. The Holy Spirit first is God, like part of, of the Trinity. There's the father, the son, the Holy Spirit. They're, they're all distinct and yet one at the same time. Okay. That's a whole lot. Just the Holy Spirit is God, which means that the Holy Spirit is not just a feeling, even though when you experience the Holy Spirit, there, there might be a feeling or emotion that conjures up within you. It, it means that the Holy Spirit is not just your consciousness, even though the Holy Spirit does guide your thoughts and lead you in wise counsel. The Holy Spirit is God and it's God with us and God within us that you have the Holy Spirit now inside of you. I can say a whole lot more about the Holy Spirit, but I, I want to look at, at just three particular roles of the Holy Spirit. We see uh, from these four verses in Acts chapter two, the roles of the Holy Spirit. There's these, these three elements that show up. There's wind, there's fire, and there's tongues or, or different languages. So I want to give uh, just a brief word on each. First, let's start with tongues because we were already sort of there. It says that the gift of speaking in tongues that's mentioned on the day of Pentecost is speaking in other human languages, not speaking in a heavenly language that's referenced elsewhere in the Bible. We ain't got time for that today. Okay. That's we'll save that for another day. But instead here, it's really talking about the Holy spirit using us for, for the fruitfulness of ministry. Using us to, to meet the needs of the world. That these early disciples were able to speak to the heart of these people so that they could hear the good news of Jesus. And yes, sometimes this does involve different languages. Like for today, it would be Spanish or French or German or something like that. We have a, a family friend who is a missionary and a linguist. And so what he does is he travels to different areas of the world, learns their language so that he can translate the Bible. He can translate the good news, the message of Jesus to them. And if you've ever tried to learn a new language, you know, that is a divine gift. But also 
I think the gift of speaking in tongues is, is being able to translate the story of Jesus in such a way that it speaks to someone's heart. That they can, they can understand it. it. It connects with them. This often involves more listening than it does speaking. That, that when you, you help someone understand the nature of God, that the love of God, that the grace of God in such a way that it connects to them and speaks to their heart, even if you're both speaking the same language, that, that's the gift of God. Or even at a more baseline level, this is simply God using us to meet the needs of the world, to meet the needs of our surrounding community. So just think of this day on Pentecost. Here's, here's all these people from all over the known world at the time, gathered into one place, and yet they're still divided. They, they still can't connect because they speak different languages. And so what does God do? God gives them the ability to connect. God, God uses these 12 disciples to go out and, and to form a community, an ecclesia, out of this chaos. And so sometimes, sometimes maybe tongues, it, it, mean, it doesn't involve words at all. Then maybe God has given you the ability to reach out in love and to help someone. Maybe God has given you the ability and the opportunity to sit and listen to someone else, to maybe offer some wise counsel. Maybe God has given you the ability to use your, your knowledge, your skills, or your trade to convey the good news of God in some way to some person. So that's tongues. Let's go on to fire. Fire's fun. I like fire. There's fire. Throughout scripture, uh, fire is typically a symbol of, of refining or purification. Fire burns down what's, what's overgrown and dead so that new life can come from it. Fire, fire burns away impurities. Fire heats up so that something that was once stiff and hard and fixed can now be changed and shaped and molded. Fire changes things and fire changes things by making them purer. I don't know if that's a real word or not. It sounds really funny when you say it out loud, purer, more pure. Fire changes things by making them more pure. And something that is pure is just simply one thing. The pure gold is just simply gold. It's nothing else. And you know, when we try to follow the way of Jesus, we realize just how impure we are, how, how divided and mixed we are, that, that we want to follow Jesus, but we also want to follow our own way. We want a full serving of God's grace, but we also want a little sin on the side. And so what the Holy Spirit does, what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit burns away those impurities, makes us whole, gives us integrity, and focuses us. Here's what James, the brother of Jesus said. This is James chapter four. James said, come near to God and he, God will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. You double minded. There's this war within our minds of wanting two things. And what the Holy spirit does is the Holy spirit gives a singularity of mind and singularity of mission. That we begin to want what God wants, or at least to ask to want to want what God wants. The Holy Spirit changes our desires, focusing our minds on God's dream and not our own dreams. 
And so the last thing, or really the first thing in the story, is wind. Holy Spirit shows up through wind. Now, this is interesting because the same word for spirit in the Bible is also the same word for wind, which is also the same word for breath. So spirit is wind, spirit is breath. There's a bunch of places that that's referenced throughout the scripture. But, but just think back to the beginning of it. Garden of Eden, when God creates human beings, God forms them out of the dust, the dirt of the earth. And then God, what? God breathes in to their nostrils and they become alive. God's spirit gives life. God's breath gives life. And so maybe, maybe just this morning, this Pentecost morning, you know, you're, you're alive. You got here, right? You're, you're alive, but you're not really living. You're alive, but you're not really spirit filled. And maybe you need to be revived to, to be brought back to life, to, to live again. And you pray for the wind of the spirit of God to come into your life. Pray, pray to catch the wind of the Holy spirit. You know, I, I think, I think the way of Jesus is much less like a rowboat and much more like a sailboat. You know what I mean? I don't think you know what I mean. Let me, let me explain. Um, a rowboat, a rowboat is, is where you have to provide the energy to make the thing move, right? You ever been in a rowboat before? It's hard work. You're the one that has to do the work so that the thing can move forward. But, but the way of Jesus is much more like a sailboat. You set the sail, you catch the wind and you're gone, baby. So now you still, you still got to put in some work with a sailboat, right? You got you to gotta raise the mast. You, you got to be able to catch the wind. You, you got to put in some work. But, but once you get that... <laughs> You let the wind take you. And so maybe, maybe for some of you, if you're, if you're like me, you, you need to put down the oars and raise up the sails. Maybe, maybe you've been struggling and straining and trying to do all of it all on your own, all by your own effort, all by your own work. And maybe you need to just set down the oars and raise the sails. Stop, stop depending upon yourself, your own strength, your own might, your own will and wisdom, your own effort. Allow the Holy Spirit to take you and lead you. Put down the oar, raise up the sail. And I know, I know that's a lot easier said than done. Trust me, because my job is to like, listen to God. My job is to like, listen to the Holy Spirit's guidance and leading. But oftentimes I find myself trying to pick up the oars, <laughs> I find myself trying to go the other way. And so I, I need to ask myself, are my sails up? <laughs> am I ready to, to receive this wind of God? Am I, am I willing to allow the Holy Spirit to take me where it wants me to go, not where I want to go? Am I positioning myself in the right place so that the Holy Spirit can lead me? Or, or more often than not, I find myself straining against it. I find myself straining in my little dinky rowboat, straining against the headwind of the Holy Spirit because I want to go my own way. God might be calling me in this direction, but I, I don't want to go there. I want to go in mine. So maybe, maybe if you're like me, you need to just stop just long enough, just long enough to pay attention to where the wind is blowing. 
What, what direction is the wind blowing in? Where's the Holy Spirit going? And, and then, I, then I bet, I bet that, that once you figure that out, I, I promise you that the Holy Spirit will purify you, give you singularity of, of thought and mission and purpose. The Holy Spirit will give you the gift of tongues, using you to meet the needs of those around you. The Holy Spirit will move you to move others, to change the world, to be Jesus's movement here and now. Let's pray together. So gracious God, Holy Spirit, we we pray that, that on this day in particular, you would fall afresh on us. That your wind would blow through this place, through our lives and our hearts, that you would lead us and guide us and direct us, oh God. Your Holy Spirit would light a flame in our hearts. Lord, take those, those places in our hearts that, that have become just as hard as stone, heat them up, shape them, mold them, make our hearts soft again to receive your love and your grace. And also, God, to extend that to our neighbors, to extend that to our enemies. And God, that you would, you would use us to be your church, to be your movement in the world, that you would use us to meet the needs of our neighbor. God, won't you do that? Holy Spirit, won't you come and fall afresh on us? Pray this. The powerful name of Jesus. Amen. And so um, after the excitement on the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit falls and there's fire and all of that fun stuff. Peter stands up, gives a sermon, the first sermon in the church. But then this is, this is really what the church actually looks like. We see it at the end of Acts chapter two. This is what the church does. After all that excitement, it says this. Acts chapter two, verse 42, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to the community, to their shared meals and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wondrous signs throughout the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions to distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and with simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community, those who were being saved. 